turn in your Bible to Nehemiah 3, we're continuing through a, a series that we started a few weeks ago. While you're turning there, God reminded me this morning, really, of this painful lesson He taught me regarding how I look at hard work, regarding how I look at really work in general. I'd gone to Honduras maybe 10 years ago with about 15 guys and we were there for two weeks, right? And uh, it was this big service project. It, we, it, was, it was a mission trip, but it wasn't really to teach or to do things like that. A hurricane had come through Honduras more than 10 years ago. Hurricane Mitch, I believe. And it wiped out this village. Because it's all thatch. There's no concrete or foundations or anything like that. So literally, the, the, the patriarch of the village, I guess you can say, said that two-thirds of all of that community were gone. Literally washed out to sea. Okay, And they never came back. So we were there to build foundations out of concrete and cinder walls that required mortar and all of that thing. So it was real work intensive. I mean, they didn't want you going if you didn't know how to handle yourself around a shovel or things like that. They didn't just want a lot of people paying a lot of money just to go on a mission trip. It wasn't one of those trips. There was no town nearby, no police, no... I mean, it was in the jungle. And so we start building these walls makes me the reason I thought about that is because Nehemiah on the surface is about a man going to build walls around the city right and so as we're building these walls the concrete that you have to use you don't just get out of sacks like we do here here we go to Home Depot and get a sack of concrete there you have a big pile of sand over here you got a big pile of aggregate big mound of pebbles and a water hose and some janky old shovels. It looked like they gave up the ghost a long time ago, you know. Just got blister written all over it, these shovels, man. And so what you do is you all get in a circle and you start flopping it all on top. You're mixing it, right? But Honduras is almost on the equator. So that sun is incredibly close. You're sweating through your clothes. You're getting sunburns through your jeans. It is horribly monotonous, tiring, physically draining work. And we were all some strapping young guys, and it was difficult for us to even make it to lunch on the first day. Meanwhile, as we're mixing this concrete for the foundation and for the mortar, you have other guys that are up on scaffolding, right? And they're the ones that receive the bricks and the mortar and put it up. And that happened to be in the shade because of where the trees were and all of that. And it started off being villagers, locals, guys that knew that they were doing, right? Amazing to me. Amazing to me is how long it took for us to start replacing the villagers up on the scaffolding because nobody wanted to mix concrete. I look around and we're missing a couple guys. Unbeknownst to me, they're up on a scaffolding. Asking for more bricks. More bricks. We need more bricks. Hurry up with that mortar. Hurry up with that. And I thought, who put that dude in charge? He sat right next to me on the plane coming over. I mean, are you serious? He's scaffolding guy? How did he get that job? And then people started mysteriously disappearing to go do electrician stuff or cook food, right? Or do some plumbing. Like they even knew what they were doing, you know? And it ended up being me and a couple other guys and like a 12-year-old villager boy with shovels just flopping concrete and getting blisters. Now, the Lord really dealt with me on that because my, I watched slowly. Two weeks I did this from morning to night. Um, had blisters on top of blisters, breaking shovels. It was a lot of work. But God showed me over a two-week spread how my heart responded to hard work. And it, it was pretty... It was pretty incredible. What does your heart look like when hard work is called for? What does it do? 
I mean, when you work hard, when you serve, to whose glory and to whose significance is it for? Have you ever thought about that? Why do you work hard? Why? You get an identity in it? Have you ever paid attention to your identity whenever you're doing hard work that no one else wants to do? Does it flare up? You feel proud of yourself? I do. Whenever you do serve and work hard, do you feel obscure? Do you feel like no one sees you? Alright? Do you feel like no one notices the hard work that you do? Anyone here in that category? Right? What about here? Some of you serve here. Do you feel like what you do here is obscure, minor, unnoticeable, insignificant? Just to, just to basically bring you up to speed, if this is your first time or you've kind of come um, off and on in the last couple of weeks, we're going through the book of Nehemiah, and at this point in the story, Jerusalem has been in rubble and ruins for 141 years. Babylon, um, brought, they came in and smashed that city, basically, kicking over the stones, burning the gates, and carrying all the people off. So, the Jews, the nation of Israel, is now dispersed, scattered, exiled, totally taken from their homeland. Generations would come and go without ever seeing Jerusalem. 141 years, that's a long time. Jews had lived and died and lived and died and lived and died and never even seen their homeland, never saw Israel, never saw Jerusalem. They were scattered exiles in a strange land that all of a sudden wasn't so strange anymore. This is Nehemiah. This is where he came from. Most likely he never saw Jerusalem until he went in the book that we're reading now, right? He was a cupbearer to the king, very educated, cultured. We looked at this, remember, a couple weeks ago. Knew what he was doing, had a good job, but he was just a normal guy working a good job. Not seminary trained, just a normal guy doing the same monotonous, tiring things day after day after day. And then he got news from the homeland. His brother and some other friends came and brought him news, but it wasn't really actually news. It's stuff that had already been going on. The news was 141 years old, right? In the age of what we have now where we can get it on our phones, we get it faster than 141 seconds. There, it was 141 years. No one even cared anymore. I mean, no one cared. It didn't break anyone's heart, yet it broke his heart. Because he had the heart of Christ. God had given him a broken heart for a people, right? We talked about how this is the beginning of being on God's mission for us. Whenever we begin to be on God's mission, your heart will break. God will give you the heart of Christ. Things that you didn't weep for originally, you'll start to weep for. Things that you didn't see originally, you'll start to see. Because you'll be seeing through the eyes of Christ, feeling through the heart of Christ. It's the beginning. It's where Jesus rips out this stone-cold hard heart and puts a beating, compassionate one in us. Right? So we start to care about what he cares about and weep over what he weeps over. It says this in Ezekiel 11. Can you put this up there for me? Verses 19 through 20. And we will come back to this later, but I do want to fly through it now. This is God speaking to his nation. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. So, broken hearted, he starts to pray and plan and strategize and and pray and plan and strategize and pray and plan and strategize over and over again repeatedly for months on end before he ever has the opportunity to give this ridiculous plea to the king Artaxerxes. This plea was over the top. 
He wanted a lot of time off. He says, I want a 12-year break. I want you to pay for it, and I want to go back and build a city at your expense that is set up against this one. Miraculously, the king says yes. That's providence. You see, God had it in his mind that he was going to gather and collect and craft a people, a nation, really, that were scattered once, exiled once, and rebellious once. And from this nation that God was going to create and bring back and renovate, He was going to bring forth the God-man, Jesus Christ, for you and for me. And He would come and defeat sin, then He would defeat death, and He would free us from the plagues and the oppressors that push us down and pin us down. You see, Nehemiah, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book because it's about God defining a nation. That's what those walls mean, building up those walls. Remember how we talked about it defines them from the surrounding nations. It's a book about God defining a chosen nation that would bring forth a king that would come and define yet a better nation. You and me. That's effectively what it is. Jesus is the better Nehemiah, who came from a comfortable setting to messy himself, to dirty his own hands, and a scattered, rebellious, and dispersed people, who are ultimately all looking for a home. It's you and me. Jesus didn't come just to risk his life like Nehemiah did. He came to exhaust it, to spend it, to leave it here, so that he could define and build walls around his chosen nation, and these walls would never crumble. These walls will never be taken, and the people within them will never be captured by anything other than God's grace. That's the meaning of this story, right? Last time, last week we looked at the text where he came and he did a damage assessment. He looked at the scourge that was on the city. He did it in the middle of the night, so the enemies couldn't see, because they would mock it if they could see him going. And he didn't know who he could trust. So he gets up in the middle of the night by torchlight with some buds, and they go around and they look at the gates. Which stones can we reuse, right? Um, which gates need more work than others? And that is where we find ourselves today. Okay? This is where we're going to pick it up. In Nehemiah 3. Now, listen, some of you have already glanced at this chapter. And I know what you're asking yourself. Are we really going to read this chapter? Are we really going to do it? Yes, the answer is yes. It has 38 individual names in it. It reads like an Egyptian phone book. I mean, it is hard. (laughs) Most commentators, I will tell you this, they skip this whole chapter. Commentators, that's their job, is to commentate on the daggum text. And what they'll do is they'll go one, two, four. And they keep going. They skip it. Preachers do too. We are not going to do it. We are going to do it. Because this is the deal. This whole Bible is written to us. The entirety of the passage, the entirety of the passages of the Bible is living, it's active, it's profound for us today. Even this one. Even in this, we are going to get a lot done today. Even in this, we're going to learn a bunch today. Okay? Even in this, we're going to see that Jesus entered through a virgin, came, left blood on a cross, left an empty tomb, and went to build a place for us. We're going to get all that from this. Alright? But it is clunky at first, I will tell you. Alright? Some of you, you aspire to be preachers and teachers. (laughs) Not today you don't. Alright, ready? Join me in 3 verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. 
The sons of Hassanah built a fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. How am I doing so far, huh? That's pretty good, right? That's all I got, really. I'm going to do the best I can on the rest of it, though. <laughs> and next to them, Zadok, the son of Baena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lords. Joyeda, the son of Paesh, and Meshulam, the son of Bezodea, repaired the gates of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and the Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. Boy, you've got to have a perfumer around, I guess, whenever you're building a wall. I don't even know what that's about. But they had perfumers, that's, that we know. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedeah, the son of Herumath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbanei, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. You notice they stopped at the dung gate there? <laughs> We're not building anymore. <laughs> we stop here. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hekaharam, repaired the dung gate. He built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhaze, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah, by the way, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half of the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashbaheah, ruler of the half... I think I said that name wrong. Don't throw a flag though, okay? I'm doing pretty good. Ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binuai, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. 
Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padaiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower, as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, into the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. What do you think of that, huh? <laughs> Nothing says exciting church like reading 38 names that I probably missed half of them, right? Next week we're going to read a mattress tag, just so you guys know. That was a joke. We're not really going to do that. Um, no, but I know it's difficult. You're going to see it's really a beautiful text for us. One thing that we can pick up in this big long text of all these names, who worked together and where they worked, is that Nehemiah was a fantastic planner. He was a good planner. He was a gifted planner, right? Not everybody is, too. Some of you use an Etch-a-Sketch or napkins or whatever. You're not good planners. You try really hard and you do the best you can, but you're not good. Some people are gifted. He happened to be very, very, very gifted. There's over 43 to 45 projects named individually here with over 10 gates. So whenever you hear the word gate, think neighborhood. That's what they're talking about, neighborhoods. It's a big project. Over two miles of wall. That's the circumference. Some say up to 2.5, maybe a little bit more. But we know it's at least two, so I did my math off of that. Each wall, or all the wall really, is 15 foot high. These curtains are 12. So add a yard to that. 15 foot high and 3 foot deep. That's how big the wall was around Jerusalem. Okay? If you do the math, that's over half a million cubic feet of brick and mortar. Stones and mortar. Take a football field, go from corner to corner, the whole thing, and start laying bricks and mortar over the whole football field, you'd have to go 10 foot high in order to match the scale of what is going on right here. And all of this they did in under 52 days. 52 days. It's a good planner. He's gifted for this. Listen, Nehemiah was not a contractor. He was a foodie. It's a cupbearer. He watched Food Network on the weekends. His dominion was the kitchen. He was not a contractor. Yet God gifted him to do a task diligently. And part of that was great planning for him. Now listen, as we go through this book, I'm really looking forward to some of you growing in leadership. I've already heard from a few of you over the last couple weeks. Luke, I really feel like God has called me to lead. And I believe it. I'm looking for some of you to, to, to really develop that call of God on your life. That gifting to be a good planner, strategist, leader of people. As we go through this, this book is going to be highly applicable to you. Highly. As a church, as we grow, I'm looking forward to having classes on leadership. Coaching, mentoring on leadership. Developing projects in the city to help you hone and sharp God's call on you to lead. 
to serve. This book is important. It's classic leadership material. Today, we haven't done this the last few weeks, but today I do want to look at that part of it. The service, the planning, the leadership. One thing he did really well, I felt like, is he's got people working close to home. Did you notice that? Everyone's working right by their house, with their family, in their own neighborhood. That's pretty brilliant. If you're going to work hard on a gate, on a wall, it's going to be the one right by your back porch, isn't it? That's the one you're going to, it's not going to be 13 foot high, it's going to be 15 foot high. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to be 2 foot deep, it's going to be 3 foot. It might even be bigger. You might try to one-up your neighbor. You might become an expert on bricks all of a sudden. You might not care about anything except laying bricks perfectly. You might want the concrete just right. Why? Because it's in your own backyard. Smart how he did that. How do we do that? What does that look like for us, realistically? As a church, as we believe we are here in Knoxville to see the walls repaired because our walls are in rubble as well. And the nations around us are having a hard time discerning what is the Christian family and what are just everybody else. Where does the church stand in distinction? That's what this means for us today as we talk about building the walls. We too as a church, we build walls. How do we do it? We do it through our missional communities. Alright? This isn't just a plug for our missional communities because I feel like we need to have more people in it. I'm telling you flat out, this is how we do it. This is how we show the world that Christ has done something for us that compels us to live our lives differently. We want to rebuild broken walls in Knoxville. We too want to collect scattered, dispersed, exiled people. We too want to introduce them to our King. We too want to see them adopted into a better nation, a better family. This is why... This is why we're never going... Some people have asked. That's why I'm answering this question. Okay, This is why we're never going to rent a facility. Now, I'm not against renting facilities. We rent this one. I'm not, I, I'm not ever... As a leadership team, we're not interested in renting a facility to collect people on Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Tuesday nights, any night. We don't want the heavy lifting of what we do during the week as a church to be in one central location. We want them to be in your locales in your loyalties, in your neighborhoods, with your families and the families around you. There's a brilliance in that, I think. I think. I think Nehemiah had it right. You'll be excited about coming to a class on Wednesday night, some of you. You will. If we teach the right thing and we have it on the right series, you'll be excited. More excited when your neighbors are having dinner with you with some of your best friends and you're able to go through the gospel story, when you're able to go through a text, when you're able to pray with each other. That you'll throw your life behind. That's how you build better walls. That's how you do it. What I also love about this is that they have the work done with families. The families are sticking together. Did y'all notice that? I love this. They fought side by side and built side by side with family. The same people you always see, same people that know all your stupid jokes, they annoy you, you annoy them, they know all your trash. This is who, this is who they did it with. That's hard work, isn't it? Now in this case, they're talking about blood family and extended family, I'm sure. But Christ certainly did come and He ramped it up, did He not? He redefined what family would be for you and me. Here's a good text. I don't think I gave it to you. I'm just going to read it. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Listen, this text really bothers the South. It bugs the South, this text. Some of you it's going to bug as soon as I read it. Verse 32 in the third chapter of Mark. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, being Jesus. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I think a lot of the South struggles with that because it feels like it might look like Jesus is devaluing family. That he's saying that those things that were really core lines of connection and relationship don't really matter anymore. He's actually doing the opposite. He's ramping it up. He's taking what you understand as family and he's saying, oh, you're not just responsible to that degree, you're actually responsible to a deeper degree. It's, oh, 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 it used to be just what you were born into. Now it's what you were born again into. It's a bigger family. That's what he's doing. I think as we read this today through that gospel-centered lens, as we look at this text, I think it'd be fair to say that we build the parts of our wall here together with those in close proximity with us that we share life with. That we share life with. This is both family and spiritual family. It's both your natural family and it's your community. That's who we build with. That's who we build our wall with. I think there's two things real fast that we can learn here. I don't want to spend any time on this. I think that we will only be distinctive as a church and our walls will only be intact to the degree that we do spiritual family well. What do I mean by that? I mean, Nehemiah would have had a really difficult time had the Hatfields and the McCoys start hucking bricks at each other and pranking each other with the mortar and all kinds. I mean, you, for, for a magnitude or, or for a, a project of this magnitude and this scale, I mean, 52 days. You have to have harmony. Everyone's got to be on the same page every day from morning, noon to night. I mean, there can't be any of that. Some of you, you serve and you work really hard in the kingdom whether it's here in Legacy or not. Some of you work really hard here at Legacy and in roles that a lot of people around here don't even know what you put into. They don't, they don't even know what you're doing. But you, you come and you serve and you serve and you serve. It's going to be really easy for you to look at other people who serve and serve and serve in your same spiritual family and have a problem with them. It's going to be easy to do that. You're going to have an issue. Because hard work brings it out. Hard work, monotonous, repetitious work, it brings it out. Stop telling me how fast to bring the bricks. I mean, it got to where I was starting to yell at these guys on the scaffolding. I'm in charge. I'm the one mixing the concrete. Understand, it all stops when I stop. I take a break, you're all taking a break. If you want the walls to go up, you chill it. No one elected you to be governor of the scaffolding anyway. I don't even know how you got up there. You're not even doing a good job. Look at it. The wall's all doing this, you know, and it starts, and then he starts jabbing at me. Well, of course the wall's like this because you're not doing a good job with the mortar. It's all clumpy. I can't even work with it, you know, and so we're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. That's what can happen real quick. Listen, as you collide with those in close proximity with you, spiritual family, community, keep the big picture in mind. We're building a wall. Keep the big picture in mind. We're building a wall. Not even the spiritual family, but the natural family. The church, our walls are intact. Our church, the kingdom, is distinct to the level that we do natural family well. Parenting, husbands, wives. How we do that well. 
Listen, and I'm only answering this because I've been asked several times. We don't plan a bunch of church things on purpose. We're pretty plain and simple, to be totally honest with you. We're not very extravagant with how we do church. We're very simple. We do two things. We meet, and then we scatter. That's it. Sunday mornings, we proclaim the gospel, take community together, celebrate the Jesus that came and lived and died and lived again for us. And then what do we do? We go to homes. We break bread together. We do community together. And we basically do the same thing all over again. It's just a one-two punch over and over and over and over again. We're not very complex. We do this for a reason. We want you to focus on your spiritual family, community, and your natural family. And if I'm booking all kinds of prayer nights, and leadership night, and systematic theology night, and film and theology night, if I've got all these things, and all of those are really good things, they're all very good things, and we've had them as a church in the past. The reason we don't trumpet and just really push that plow of getting everyone to show up to all these different things is because that's one more night you're not with your family. That's one more night that here I'm trying to tell you how to be a good dad and you don't have any template to do it. You don't have a weeknight to do it. Because after baseball and date night and you got home late and you don't feel good, there's just nothing left after a while. We want you to focus on your family and we want you to focus on your direct community. And that's how we do our missional communities. We, the reason we do this is because if we fail here, if we fail on how we do spiritual family, And if we fail on how we do natural family, we can preach the gospel all day long to Knoxville. They're not going to get it. Because they're not seeing it. It doesn't make sense. Right? The hardest leadership in the world is among those that know you really well. That's it. The ones who know you the most. It's not glamorous. It is obscure. It's relentless. It's hard to measure over time, it's difficult leadership. I mean, let's just talk about obscurity for a minute. Had you walked into this project that Nehemiah is doing at day 26, right halfway through the middle of it, you know what you would have seen? People walking around with rocks. That's what it would have looked like. Back and forth, like an ant farm. Rocks. Drop the rock. Go over. Pick up the rock. Come over. Drop the rock. Over and over and over. It's not very glamorous. It's monotonous. Boring, boringly predictable, hard, obscure, right? Monotony makes us feel like what we do is insignificant, doesn't it? It can to me. I'll be just be honest with you. Monotony makes me feel sometimes like what I do is obscure, diminished, not important. You know? Children's ministry, set up, tear down, worship team. It's monotonous. I've been doing church mobile, mobile church, this in the last church plant, for the better part of 10 years. I've done church mobily, and I, and I will t- or in a mobile sense. And I will tell you, it is incredibly monotonous. I mean, it's real exciting at the beginning, isn't it? Some of you remember those first few weeks. Some of you were here. Look how cool the curtains are. Wow, it looks so cool, you know? Look how cool the sound system is. I've never seen speakers like that. Everyone's all excited and everything. And then after like five months, it's like, ugh, why do these curtains have to be so heavy? What do I do with this again? Ugh, you know? It's exciting at first. If we lose the big picture over what we're doing, even here, I mean, I'll just shrink it down. Here at Legacy, if we lose the big picture of what we're doing, 
And children's ministry just becomes monotonous. Setting up and tearing down is just monotonous. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. If we lose the big picture, we leave mission. We slip away from mission, just feeling insignificant. If someone were to walk in, this is a difference. I'll put skin on it. There's three dudes setting up the curtain. We'll just use this as an example since it's here. Comes up the guy one. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm putting up this, putting up this curtain. Then they go to person two. Hey, what are you doing? Well, I'm putting up this curtain because I've got to finish this wall. I'm in charge of this little area and we're about to get it done. A little bit more vision. You can hear the difference? Person three. What are you doing? Oh, we're putting up a curtain because this is part of what we do on Sunday morning. Yes, I know it's early, but we believe that people are going to come, hear the gospel. Some of them are going to be changed forever. We hope that everyone's heart is affected. We're excited to celebrate the God-man coming to us. Do you see the difference between that and I'm setting up a curtain? I'm not saying that everyone needs to answer that all the time. Hey, Christian, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing lyrics and scriptures up on the screen because I believe people will look at them. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's how we should respond, but I'm saying if we slip away from seeing the big picture, we are going to feel insignificant and we start to leave mission. Some of you might feel like your role here is insignificant. You wonder if the, the little part that you play is even noticed. You do. This had to be the case with Nehemiah's people too. They're carrying rocks. I mean, how glamorous is that? Right? Some of you feel like that what you might do is so minor that no one ever even notices it. You know what? You might be right. You might be right. Others might have no clue to what you're doing. No matter the sacrifice that you're pouring into it. Your hard work, your support, your partnership, your level of investment into this and the whole scheme of things might be very obscure. Can you live with that? Can you live with that? It's brick by monotonous brick, week after repetitive week. Can you live with that? Can you live with it? Your kids, the kids after them, as they come in, they might not ever notice your investment into the kingdom of God. Your great-grandkids, they might, but they might not ever know what you ever did to invest in the kingdom. Can you live with that? Can you live with this? Can you live with living a life of laying brick by brick, day after day, to build a wall, to define a people that tells a story much bigger and much more profound than just you, where you might be in the periphery and there is great significance, but it's not attributed to you. It's attributed to the king that you've come to make famous. Can you live with that? You know, even the most obscure service that some of you do, some of you set up chairs, some of you do the curtain, some of you get here really early, somebody sets this screen up every week. Somebody brings their gear to, to cast it up there every week. People come up and bring their own. I mean, every week. Even the most obscure service that you do is ministry to the Lord. It is ministry to God. It is ministry to the Lord. It, it's not the most grandiose and momentous acts that win a city. It's just not. It's the grind. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's the grind. We will have big moments. We will. We'll have momentous seasons. But make no mistake, in the long haul, cities are captured through the grind. Walls are built through the grind. You know, 
he's not the greatest role model in the world, but he does have a good quote. And I like to collect quotes. William Carey is considered the father of modern missions. Not the greatest family man, but he did start what we see as the modern missions movement. Okay? He was in India for 14 years before he saw his first convert. That's the level that he plowed. That's a long time, right? That's a lot of newsletters that say the same thing. 14 years. This is his quote. I am no superstar, but I do know how to plod. I love that. That ministers to me because I really feel like that is what it is. Now everything that we even have in India basically traces itself back to the stump that was William Carey's primal work there. Right? Let me tell you, miracle Jesus, popular Jesus, tabloid Jesus that came and started doing all the miracles and raising people up from the dead and teaching these great things, that came from 30 years of repetitious, monotonous grind. Insignificant obscurity. That's where it came from. We don't ever notice that. We usually just pay attention to the last four years where all the bells and whistles are at, right? And we forget that there was 30 before that. That 30 in obscurity, and it was obscure, came from a family that was seemingly no-named family from a one-horse town that no one even would go through, right? It's almost as if God was bragging over how obscure and insignificant the beginnings of Christ would be. What was he doing in those 30 years? Serving and ministering to God by his service. Even in obscurity. You know, you're doing, just, you're doing a lot more than just throwing bricks and mortar around. If you serve here, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. I simply could not. I try. I just know. It, my best attempts at thanking you would fall short. Thank you so much. You are doing more than just throwing bricks and throwing mortar around. And I'll tell you, even worse than being unheard of and unnoticed is doing so by doing a job that you don't want to do. I mean, can we talk about the dung gate for a second? <laughs> can we talk about the dung gate? The, the entrance to the sewage system? They had a gate for it? It takes a big picture type of a leader and servant to be there, doesn't it? That guy that says, I'll do it. That's just a different guy. He's got a bigger picture in his head. As a church leader, and I've got a little bit of mileage on sifting through a lot of people over the years who say they want to be a leader and really finding the ones that really do have that call of gift and sacrifice on their life, the dung gates are the best fishing tank to find them. If you want to find a good leader, go looking at the dung gates. This guy, Malkijah, he was a stud, I guarantee it, without even knowing him. Without ever seeing a picture of him, I guarantee he was a stud. Because he's doing something. This is what these leaders do. They do the hard thing, they do it in excellence, and they don't care who gets the glory. They are able to keep the big picture in mind. And I want to compare this type of a person, this dung gate worker, with the nobles. In verse 5, it describes a noble who they did not stoop to serve. These nobles who would not stoop to serve. These are basically men that did not want to get their hands dirty. Right? Sadly, sadly for Nehemiah, sadly for them, I guess, too, I suppose, they would run for office later on. They would run for a popularity contest to win office. That figures, right? Nothing really changes. <laughs> I have gotten, and I will continue to get people who really desire to lead and serve come through, but it's typically, typically, and I'm sad to say the word typically, only going to be in places where they want to do it. Only in venues that they feel comfortable in, only in ways that will draw significance and glory towards them. It's very difficult. These types of people, they typically don't even know where the dung gate is. Okay, 
Why? Why is this? Why is this the case? It's because they. And when I say they, this is me at one time too, right? And it's me now if I'm not careful. It's because these people don't understand the gospel very well. They have not yet put their arms around the entirety of what the gospel is. There's a misunderstanding and a lot of times a total denial of the gospel. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of one who came to stoop. Did he not? Jesus came to stoop. Can I just tell you, we are the Dungate. I'm sorry if that offends you. We are. He came into our sleaze and our sludge, looking like us, sounding like us, but not acting like us, so that He could do something magnificent for us. He stooped. This is what it says in Philippians 2. It was read earlier. This is the text that did a lot of lifting for us. Earlier in the service, I'm going to do it again. Alright, there it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That means you become obscure. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, a, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That means he stooped. By taking the form of a servant, there he is stooping further. Being born in the likeness of men, he's stooping again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross that is more than anyone has ever stooped. Right there. You know, we are called to image and echo the one who is our ultimate leader, which is Christ. We stoop in our leadership, in our service, not to gain a name for ourselves but to celebrate the one who did stoop even further. And that's Jesus. And let me, let me just be clear right here. I need to be real painfully clear. This is important that you hear this. We don't do Dungate work to make ourselves famous. Well, that sounds obvious, Luke. For guys, it could be a little bit of an issue. For guys. I know for women it can too, but I mean, let me just speak frankly. For guys, it's easy to do the one-up thing. I'm going to one-up. Oh, you can work in the Dungate? I could do it even more. You know, I watched my heart in that two weeks in Honduras. Week one, I wanted out of that pit just like everybody else. And I was just bitter because they were smarter than me and thought of it faster, right? Week two, they started feeling real crummy for being up there. Poor Luke, blisters on blisters, not ever complaining. And they wanted to get back in there and trade their spot with me. And you know what I said? Uh-uh. No, nah, because I can do the hard work. Because I can do it. I'm real sad you can't. Go on up there, scaffold boy. I'll bring you bricks whenever I'm ready, you know. I wanted to be the hard worker. I wanted to show everybody that I could do what no one else wanted to do. I could do it faster, I could do it better, and I could do it without whining. But what am I doing when I do that? That's self-righteousness, isn't it? Now I'm taking an identity in the wrong thing. Am I making myself obscure in that moment? No, I'm not. I'm drawing glory to myself. Significance to myself. Christ emptied himself. To do Christ-centered work is to empty yourself. That does mean your image. It also means your desire to feel better about yourself when you've done something. Right? For doing the hard work that no one else wants to do. 
patting yourself on the back. I mean, if you sneer at others that won't stoop and serve, if you sneer at them, and yet you take your image and significance from doing the same thing, that's just pseudo-humility. That's just self-righteousness. Right? I'll tell you how intoxicating this can be. Um, I would say even further back than 10 years, maybe 12 or so, I found myself walking in my office in Texas and praying. We, are, we had planted our second campus ministry, um, and it was having, we were having a hard time getting it off the ground. I mean, we started it at a living room, just me and Paula, and that's it. A living room with no furniture. Nothing says cool to the college students like that, you know. An old dude and his wife in a living room with no furniture. But that's what we started with. And as I'm praying and I'm walking back and forth, I felt God ask me a question. And it's not the question that bothered me. It was the response of my heart and the hesitancy of it that really bugged me, okay. And, and I'm not going to say it took long for him to spell this out. It was just a, a flash, an instant, and I was postured between A and B. I felt like God was saying, Would you rather lead a successful church where it's growing, it's blowing up, and you're planting churches as fast as you can, which is my dream, you know, and have lots of people just being baptized and marriages coming back together and marriages joining for the first time and babies being born. I mean, would you rather be that, be that guy? Or would you rather be over here doing this thing, which is totally right in the center of my will where I want you, but no one's ever going to know your name, no one's ever going to hear your story, and you will disappear in history? Which would you rather have? Like you guys, I know what the right answer is. I know what the right answer is. But do you see how strong that desire is? We're scared to death to be obscure, are we not? We're scared to death to empty ourselves and serve others. Serve another's agenda. Serve another's story. We're scared to death. We're intoxicated with the idea of being significant. When John the Baptist says, I might diminish that he might increase, whenever he's talking about those levels changing, man, I need more of that in my heart. I want to decrease. You know, my favorite quote, I'm about to be done here. My favorite quote, and I have a bunch. This is the one I keep threatening I'm going to tattoo um, on me, but I'm a chicken. I don't want it to hurt. And it's a long quote, so or I think it's long. But it's Count Zinzendorf, and he has this quote. And it says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And the first time I read that, I thought, yuck, that's morose. I don't feel very happy anymore after reading that quote, you know. But the deal is, is that's it. That encapsulates it. That's, that's going for what I'm going for. To be obscure. To disappear. If need be, disappear. Let my significance fall on the floor that his significance just erupt and be elevated. Let my fame drop short that his fame would be magnified in the city. Can we serve that way? Can we do it? Can we work in the dung gates? Can we do the monotony? Can we build the bricks of this city? Can we do it brick by painful brick by painful brick without not just whining about it, but glorying in it and drawing glory even in that? It's hard, isn't it? Uh, The team can go ahead and come back up if you want to come up. Let me ask you, because we're about to go into worship. As these guys come up, y'all are thinking, well, I... I thought we did worship at the beginning. We only did one song. We usually wait till the very end to do most of our music because we want you to respond. And right now, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking for you to respond in your heart towards God.
Because some of you, some of you might find yourself looking a lot like the nobles, right? Who will not stoop. And this is what it looks like. I'm not going to do that because someone else is going to do that. And if I just turn my head over here just long enough, someone else will pick up that load and I won't have to do it, right? I know how it works. I, I am one, right? I am one of those guys. But I can also be the other guy too that will do the hard work and make sure everybody knows that I'll do it. I'll stick it in there. I'll be that guy. And then again, drawing glory to myself instead of God. You might find yourself in one of those two places. And this would be a good opportunity for you to respond in your heart. Some of you, some of you, you have gone from job to job, role to role, community to community, people to people, family to family, house to house. You've gone on and on and on, always feeling like no one ever notices what you do. And you are so caught up in what you produce and that everybody sees it. And you feel like you're always misunderstood. You feel like no one ever gets you right because they don't see what you do. And this is either because you don't understand the gospel as a Christian, you might not understand it as as a totally lost person. Listen, some of you in here, you don't have a heart of flesh beating in your chest like Ezekiel says. There's a heart of stone. And it's very difficult for you to follow the commands of the Lord. Let's put it back up there. Oh, he's not there. Man, right when I needed you. I needed you so bad, Christian. Here it is. And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. Some of you do not have a new spirit in you. Some of you don't. It's the old one. The one that you were born with. The one that Adam gave you. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. And I will give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes. And keep my rules and obey them. Some of you have been trying to just keep rules and obey them. And that's just been your life. But you've never had a desire to do it. You've only done it because you want God to bless you. You've only done it because you want to show God that you're worth something that He did for you. But you don't really do it out of a joy. Do you understand? That is religion. That is morality. Christianity is different. Christianity says, I love to do the precepts, the principles, and follow the law.